HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by DMV Black Restaurant Week, bringing culture, education, and good food to eaters in the D.C., Maryland, and Virginia area. Hi, welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio. For the past few years now, I've continued to be impressed by the work of the League of Kitchens and its founder, Lisa Gross. The League of Kitchens is a group of women from around the world who hosts a few people at a time in their homes to teach them the cooking techniques, recipes, and traditions of their countries, a true culinary history connection. Recently, a young colleague and fellow member of the Culinary Historians of New York, Julia Fleisch, told me that she was working for the League of Kitchens, now in their transition mode to online classes. And when she said she was interested in doing an interview with her boss, Lisa Gross, I thought, who better to present the story to you? So I asked Julia to be a guest host. I hope you enjoy this fascinating interview about the women of the League of Kitchens and the cross-cultural connection. Hello, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Julia Fleisch, your guest host for this episode. I'm talking today with Lisa Gross, the founder and CEO of the League of Kitchens, and also my boss. I started working with her and the whole team at the League of Kitchens in April as a class supporter in our online cooking classes, and I have to say it is truly an honor to work with Lisa and this whole group of women. I'm eager to share with you all what we do and its connection to culinary history. Now, a bit of background about what this company is. In normal times, the League of Kitchens is a culturally immersive culinary experience in New York City in which immigrant women from around the world, who are expert home cooks, invite participants into their homes and share their family recipes. Unlike traditional cooking classes, the League of Kitchens classes are centered around community and connection. These are shared human experiences as much as they are cooking technique classes. Now, of course, given the circumstances of the year 2020, we've transitioned to online Zoom classes that are really focused on that same idea of human connection. Classes are uniquely interactive. Participants cook along with instructors, chat, ask questions, and hear stories of ancestors and childhoods in places such as Iran, Mexico, Uzbekistan, and more. Today on the show, we'll hear about how the League of Kitchens came to be And I'll explore with Lisa one of the many impacts of this social enterprise, the preservation and transmission of culinary tradition. 
we'll discuss the powerful concept of culinary and cultural lineage holders, why it's important, and how this all plays out with this eclectic bunch of cooking instructors from around the world. And of course, a big thank you to Linda Palaccio and the Heritage Radio Network for providing the platform to share about this exciting work. I hope you all enjoy our conversation. Hi, Lisa. Hey, Julia. I'm glad we can do this. Yeah, thank you so much for asking me to be on the show. For sure. So to start off, I would love for you, Lisa, to share with the listeners a little bit about your background and how the idea of the League of Kitchens came to be. Yeah, so the idea of the League of Kitchens actually came out of my own experience in that my mother is Korean. She immigrated to the U.S. in the early 1970s. My father is American of Hungarian Jewish descent. And my Korean grandmother lived with my family when I was growing up and helped take care of me and raise me. And she cooked all of this amazing Korean food all the time. But whenever I wanted to help her in the kitchen or showed interest in cooking, most of the time she would say, oh, don't worry about cooking. You should go study because studying is more important. And actually, as when I've told this story in different contexts, a lot of children of immigrants say, like, that's what happened to me, too. So basically, you know, my Korean grandmother really wanted for me professional and educational opportunities that she didn't have that she really wanted. And she also didn't value her own cooking skills and expertise because it wasn't really valued in her culture or community. It was really taken for granted. And so... Because of that, I never learned to cook from her. Neither did my mother for the same reason. My mom's actually the youngest of six, so her older sisters learned. But by the time my mom was growing up, my grandmother was just like, do what you want, go study. Um, And so later after college, when I was living alone, actually I was living with my boyfriend, who's now my husband, but we were cooking for ourselves for the first time. We both fell in love with cooking and wanted to cook dishes from our childhoods. And so I wanted to cook these Korean dishes I loved and remembered from my childhood. And my grandmother had passed away by that time. So I couldn't learn from her. I couldn't learn from my mom because she doesn't really know how to cook Korean food. It's not that interested. And so I tried to teach myself from cookbooks and from the internet. And just nothing tasted as good as when my grandmother had made it. And I realized that there are always like little tricks and details and ways of doing things that you really need to learn from a person and that are very sensory based. It's like the dough should feel like this at this moment, or when you put the spices in, it should smell like this or sound like this, or this should taste like this at this point in the recipe. And, you know, first of all, those are very difficult to convey through writing or video. Um, And also they're often just left out. And those are things that you need to learn from a person. So I had this fantasy of like, oh, I wish there was another Korean grandmother that I could cook with and learn from and cook with her in her home kitchen and learn her family recipes. And so I kind of stored that idea away and I did many other different things and ended up doing an MFA in participatory public art. And I was doing a lot of projects involving food. And when I moved back to New York after doing that, and I was thinking about my next project and what I love about New York City, and it's the incredible diversity of the city. And this idea came back to me, and I thought, well, what if I could find amazing home cooks from all around the world who could welcome students into their homes and teach their family recipes, and that this experience could be just as much about 
cross-cultural learning and exchange and connection as it was about the cooking and the eating. And so that idea became the seed of what became League of Kitchens. Then what were your first steps? How did you actually get going? Yeah, so initially I thought I would do this as like a three-month art project in partnership with an arts organization. Mm -hmm. But before I even got to that point, I thought, you know, this is an idea that sounds good in my head, but I I don't know what it will actually feel like. Would this actually feel good, be interesting? So I decided to do a small pilot where I found – two women who actually still teach for us, um, Afsari, our Bangladeshi instructor, and Jeanette, our Lebanese instructor. And they agreed to do this small pilot with me where I did a, I did a kind of test training because I realized like, oh, I need to figure out some sort of training. And I had to figure out all these different things. Um, and I thought I would do some test workshops for friends and family to see what this is actually like. And every step of the way, I realized like, oh, I need to figure out how many people should be in these classes? How long should these classes be? How many dishes should should um, everyone cook? Like, oh, should this start with a, some food? I mean, it basically was like puzzling out each thing as I came across it. And then I did this pilot. The instructors love teaching. Both Jeanette and Asari um, had, were, are, were great cooks and hosts, but hadn't taught cooking before and they loved doing it and then my friends and family who were the students loved it and I also realized it was a lot of work to find these two women who I was working with and to train them and and I realized oh because initially I was like oh I'll find like 30 people this will be for three months I was like oh well for the amount of effort and work this takes and the amount of enthusiasm that the participants felt and expressed maybe I could do this actually as a small business. Maybe this could be, um, you know, a kind of unusual cooking school where people pay for cooking classes, but the cooking classes are these special experiences. Um, And so I decided to launch it as a small business. And that was, um, I did the pilot in February of 2013. So a little over seven years ago. And then we opened for business um, February of 2014 with our first six instructors. And these classes were all in their homes already in New York City, right? Yes. So these were in our instructor's home kitchens Mm -hmm. where students would sign up and go to our instructor's homes. And so, you know, obviously we can't do that now, but at the heart of that is really this culturally immersive experience that reverses the conventional power dynamics where usually the immigrant is the person who's dislocated or disoriented or, um, you know, in the subservient position. And then in our classes, the immigrants are the experts, the hosts, the teachers, the ones who are the queens of their domain who are, you know, welcoming the students into their homes. Yeah, it's really their space. And it's like what you were longing for from the start of not having the experience of learning from your Korean grandmother, Mm. that home cooking experience actually in the person's space with their tools, with the ingredients that they use. Totally. And actually, Lisa, do you speak Korean? Did you speak to your grandmother? I did. Yeah. So my grandmother didn't speak English. So... I grew up speaking Korean with her, Uh Um, but she always, Korean has different levels of formality. And so she always spoke to me in the lowest form, which is like to children. 
Okay. And she and my mom spoke Korean to each other. So I, I understand domestic Korean very well. My mom also has a Southern Busan accent. So I understand like that accent. And, but if, when I watch TV, I really understand like 10% and it's really atrophied over the years. So like Parasite? Did you, did you I, well, I've never watched that first of all because I'm terrified of scary movies. But okay, but scary well, movies like I understand just little bits. But I could understand like everything my grand my grandmother my mom said to each other. So I kind of have like an innate native understanding of a kind because I grew up speaking it. But it's not great. My got opinion. it. Well, back to the League of Kitchens and, and the instructors, who they are and who your grandmother is. I want to talk about this idea that you've mentioned, I've heard you mention, of culinary and cultural lineage holders. Mm -hmm. I heard you mention this in an interview before I even met you. And I was like, what is this term? (laughs) This is so intriguing. And I want to unpack it and just explore what it's all about. So can you tell us what this term is? Yes. What it means for you? So first, I just want to say, you know, our instructors aren't just good home cooks. They're really exceptional, excellent, expert home cooks who do everything from from scratch using traditional methods and techniques and who grew up cooking and learning cooking from their families. And so to we currently have uh, 12 instructors. And over the years at this point... You know, I've probably talked to close to 400 different people because usually I do like initial interviews and then I do in-home cooking auditions with people. I've probably done close to, I don't know, 150, 200 cooking auditions over the last eight years, seven years. Um, because what I'm looking for is really exceptional people with exceptional knowledge who are also great hosts and have the potential to be great teachers. And so... What I've come to realize, and, and you know, this, this idea of the lineage holder actually comes from Buddhism, um, and I've particularly heard that term in Zen Buddhism, where a teacher transmits their lineage or their knowledge and expertise to a student um, who becomes the next teacher for the next generation, and that's called a transmission, and that that person is the lineage holder of the knowledge of that lineage of teacher to teacher to teacher um, of the spiritual teachings. And what I realized, and this is just a couple of years ago, is that our instructors are really culinary and cultural lineage holders. And what I mean by that is they hold some of the culinary knowledge and expertise of their culture. They're one of the, like all of our instructors in their communities are recognized as the best cooks in their communities. Like, oh yeah, you know, Noida's food is always the best or Jeanette's food is always the most amazing. And they learned their cooking knowledge and expertise from their mothers and grandmothers. And it really is this oral tradition this of knowledge and expertise passed down between women in the home. It's also this domestic tradition. And really, I realized that that's how culinary knowledge has been passed down around the world for the last 10,000 years is really as an oral tradition between women in the home. But because it's 
a women's tradition, an oral tradition, a domestic tradition, it's been almost invisible or very unrecognized and definitely not compensated or valued. You know, it's like my grandmother's experience of having this, this knowledge and expertise really taken for granted in many ways. Um, and so a big part of what we do with the League of Kitchens is really recognizing and valuing that knowledge and expertise and creating a way for these incredible women to share that knowledge and expertise beyond their immediate family or community and to be well compensated and recognized for that skill and knowledge and expertise too. There are so many things about this that I love. It brings attention to so many important causes and ideas and the way that we think about the world and Mm -hmm. food and women and the domestic space and Mm -hmm. history and this whole idea connected to the Zen Buddhist tradition there's this emphasis on on how we pass on the information orally mm-hmm. and we think about not just the information itself but who's passing it on and how we do it you know i'm thinking about that also in what i've tried to learn from my ancestors and mm-hmm. bringing intention to that learning and to the lineage mm-hmm. So many questions about this subject, but specifically you were mentioning the valuing of women's tradition, that this is primarily women's tradition. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how League of Kitchens is in a lot of ways a feminist endeavor? Yes. And I will say it's a hundred percent a feminist project and that hundred percent really, a thousand percent. Great. So that is really important to what we're doing, you know, because Most cooking done every day around the world is done by women in the home. And obviously, there are men who cook too, and I don't want to negate their value. And I do think it's interesting that in many cultures around the world, the cooking that men do, it's often the barbecuing. It's basically large-scale cooking or outdoor cooking or cooking that takes more – that's either more public Mm -hmm. um, or – requires more like physical strength and stamina, like using a large outdoor oven with like a lot of wood or something like that. Um, But this idea of restaurants and restaurant chefs being the apotheosis of cuisine is really uh, 19th century French, Italian, English, like Western European idea. But You know, one thing I've really learned from our instructors, actually, is that in many, many, if not most other cultures around the world that aren't Western European, Mm -hmm. the fullest expression of the cuisine is found in the home. And the food that people eat outside the home is really street food or festival food. And so the food that you get in a restaurant, like, for instance, I think this is very true in South Asian cuisines. Like when I talk to um, our Indian or Bangladeshi or Nepali instructors about restaurants, they're always like, oh, you know, in a restaurant, they have to cut corners. They have to do things quickly because really the fullest expression of South Asian food, you have to use so many different spices. There are so many different steps. It can be very labor intensive and it's just too expensive and too time consuming for restaurants to cook in that way. And so you really can only experience that full expression in someone's home. Mm-hmm. And and so, but I do think that, especially in our contemporary moment in culture where restaurant chefs and celebrity chefs who are mostly white men are really the ones who've been kind of lionized and put on a pedestal, it feels extra important to recognize women um, and women of color too who are so deeply knowledgeable and who are carrying this knowledge and expertise 
within their communities and cultures. Totally. Super important. And also interesting you said about South Asian cultures, because I feel particularly grateful to Yamini, the Indian instructor at League of Kitchens, who I've learned from a ton, because I feel like I've gone to Jackson Heights to neighborhoods where there's a big Nepali or Indian community, and there aren't so many restaurants, really. There's some, but not a ton. And I feel like what I know of those cuisines is from League of Kitchens experiences. And it's also different food, like you mentioned. They're acting in a totally different way. And then also something I know you mention a lot, and also all of the instructors mention, is that there's love in this food. Mm, yeah. This episode is brought to you by DMV Black Restaurant Week, bringing together Black restaurant owners in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia area with a mission to keep Black food culture alive. But DMV Black Restaurant Week is not just about a week. It's about making an impact in the community all year round. By advocating for local Black-owned restaurants, DMV Black Restaurant Week aims to use food as a force for good. In 2020, they're planning signature programming, like the Business of Food and Education Conference, cocktail competition, and more. Learn more about how DMV Black Restaurant Week is promoting culture, education, and good food at dmvbrw.com. Okay, so I want to ask you, Lisa, continuing on this idea of lineage holders, how this comes through with instructors and what lineages are they holding? Tell us more about the instructors and where they're coming from and their stories. Well, I think one thing that's interesting is that almost all of our instructors will say, oh, I learned this dish from my mother. I learned this dish from my mother-in-law. I learned this dish from my aunt. I learned this dish from my husband's aunt. And, you know, there are all these very specific nuances. Like, for instance, um, Demira, our Uzbek instructor, is from Samarkand. And her husband, Sahib, who actually helps her with her classes and who's himself a wonderful cook, um, who's an expert in plov, which is one of those, like, large-scale outdoor specialty dishes. Mm-hmm. Um, but and his mother was also an excellent cook and his family um, is Tajik and um, Demira's family is Uzbek. But Sahib's family also cooked a lot of dishes using very old traditional methods. And so Demira will talk about learning those from her mother-in-law or certain dishes that she makes that are very Samarkandian or like that specific style. Um, and I just think that that is it's having that kind of specificity and attention to detail and just capturing that kind of nuance and those those different lineages that exist even within a family um you know this and also recognizing that cooking is always a living tradition you know people always add their own touch people always make things their own or have slightly different ingredients and it is always evolving but i think there's it's you know there's always this tension between kind of evolution innovation and tradition and Mm -hmm. i think one thing that's unique about our instructors is though of course they are all Americans living in 2020 in New York City who also like to eat food from other cuisines and, you know, buy breakfast cereal and 
you know, are not just stuck in the past and in some other country, they also all really value traditional techniques and methods and preserving and passing those down. Because I do think, you know, culinary knowledge is an incredible aspect of human knowledge and learning that's been created through trial and error, you know, over 10,000 years, literally. And so there's so much richness there in terms of what goes with what or how you use certain uh, ingredients or techniques for making things. And I think because it's also this kind of home cooking we're also talking about is an oral tradition, a women's tradition, a domestic tradition. It's so easy to lose it. It's so easy for it to disappear. I mean, I think this is another story that I hear so often from people that I can also relate to. It's just, you know, somebody is a great cook in their family, doesn't teach anybody else those family recipes. They disappear when that person dies Mm -hmm. and nobody else in the family knows how to cook that dish that way. You know, so it's so ephemeral in a way, too. It really is. Yeah. And then I think that's part of why this even just putting a term on this is important for the preservation and transmission that you're just paying attention to the idea of of lineage, of transmission that is worth valuing and -hmm. passing on, because it also, you know, it also says so much about a family's history, about mm-hmm. a culture's history, mm-hmm. cultural context mm-hmm. in, as you said, every every space that it's in, both in like Sahib's Tajik family and that it's alive, that it's it's not just playing Uzbek culinary history. Like there's almost no such thing. It's a person's story and a family's mm-hmm. story mm-hmm. and, you know, a story of all the people they come into contact with. I'm thinking also about classes that I've been in that yeah really every instructor acknowledges who taught them mm-hmm. and also where the dishes come from like like Mab the Iranian instructor the Persian instructor she talks about that how the dish she makes it's called uh, bagale gatov that is i believe from from the north her mother's from the north she's in central iran and you know these things are coming from all over and then on top of that she uses a tortilla in her Mm. Tadi mm-hmm. to make her crispy Persian rice. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that idea of the living history. Yeah, yeah, the tradition and evolution. Mm-hmm. And just to explain why she does that, so traditionally you would use uh, lavash bread, but mm-hmm. she says that in America, because lavash is generally sold to make sandwich wraps, Mm-hmm. That there's usually some sort of preservative or softening agent that's put in it that prevents it from really getting crispy mm. on the bottom of the pot. And so huh. she found that Trader Joe's homestyle tortillas, which also Andrea, our Mexican instructor, thinks are the best commercially produced flour tortillas you can buy, that they really crisp up and approximate the texture and flavor of like traditional lavash bread that you would use on the bottom of a t- as a tadig. Oh, leave it to yeah. Trader Joe's. Evolution <laughs> and uh, preservation is right. really, it's the balance. Totally, sure. totally. And for I think sure. also, as you're pointing out, you know, all these recipes too are so connected to stories, to cultural traditions, to family traditions, to memories. Um, you know, that there are so many layers of cultural history that interweave with these recipes. And interestingly, too, you know, um, I remember reading an essay once 
uh, by an anthropologist about how the last aspect of culture to um, to stay during assimilation, like when people come from other countries to the U.S., um, is food. Like people change their dress, you know, they don't follow the dietary, like their their religious rules, or they stop celebrating certain holidays, or they give up all different kinds of aspects of their culture. But the last thing to kind of go, which is sort of sad, but um, in this process of assimilation or culturation is food. And so people really do stay connected to their, to their culture from their place of origin through food. And so I think that's why, like in America, where there is so much pressure to assimilate, um, food becomes an even more important cultural touchstone. Totally. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, I definitely, I feel like I see that in my own life and my mm-hmm. own grandparents, you know, they want people who want to assimilate so yeah. badly, yeah, but they don't want to leave behind their, what makes you feel at home, what makes you feel warm and good yeah the food food. yeah Mm -hmm. exactly or the memories associated with the food or yeah Lisa I'm wondering what do you think your Korean grandmother would think of this idea of culinary and cultural lineage holders that's an interesting question I think she would kind of be like hmm I guess you're right (laughs) really I mean I think in a certain way she just really she didn't value her own cooking skills or culinary knowledge you know she really so much like wanted me and my mom I mean as she put it in this letter to my mom once like don't be an ordinary housewife which makes me feel so sad actually because it's a total devaluing of very important care work of like caring for family and home and cooking and you know like that's it's it's I mean I think this also just is a little segue back to the discussion of feminism you know I think this is the League of Kitchens is a kind of third or fourth wave feminist response to the rejection of cooking that came with second wave feminism Uh you know of like which was important and I totally understand. And it's like the pendulum swings, you know, it's like, let's get women at the top of companies and on Wall Street and doctors and lawyers and positions of power and government. And that is so, so important. But there was a rejection of and a devaluing of the areas of life that have traditionally or conventionally been associated with women. And, um, you know, that is also not healthy and is mm-hmm. a huge loss. Um, and so this is like, well, let's, we can, we can have both, you know, it's like, I feel like my grandmother would be like, well, if you're going to be cooking or like focused on cooking, at least you're running your own company. (laughs) That's great. But it just shows like there's a lot of ambivalence about all of this, you know? Totally. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you mentioned the different waves of feminism because it really does reflect the values of the kitchen and women's work that she was falling into another category of how to think about what has traditionally been women's work. And you and I and some people around us are falling into a new one. And I'm curious to see in the future how people think about kitchen work. Is it women's work and Mm -hmm. how we value it in different ways? I mean, I think, too, that, you know, we're seeing the huge, in our current culture and society, the huge impact of losing cooking skills, you know, like, 
huge generations of people have lost cooking skills and that is a huge impact on health. That Mm -hmm. if you can't cook for yourself and you're just eating processed food or takeout or fast food, you know, it's devastating for your health. And so it's so important for people to learn how to cook again. And so I feel like that places even more importance on our instructors and the fact that they haven't lost touch with these traditions and with these skills and now can share that. There's so many more people want to and need to learn. You know? Absolutely. And, and are I, seeking it out. And I do think actually one silver lining of the pandemic and moving to online classes is that now we have people joining our classes from all over the U.S. and from other places in the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we also have people like we have we've had several um parents of babies join our classes where they'll be cooking or they'll be, you know, um, like switching off and then somebody will be with the baby. Like they wouldn't normally be able to take our classes where you're going to someone's apartment for four and a half hours, you know, right, right, right. in a certain way being forced to move online, which initially I really dragged my feet about is opening up a huge opportunity and, and just making our instructors um, and their classes more accessible to more people. Um, and also our classes are slightly larger than in person. They're cheaper. Um, and I mean, so that that feels exciting. And I've been very happy to discover that they actually feel really special and connected. And there's something magical about cooking this whole dish start to finish by yourself in your own kitchen that I think is really powerful. Also cooking it on your own, like you do the whole thing start to finish. In my experience, it also makes me so much more likely to make it again. You know, Mm. you have, you have a real understanding of it on your own. And I think in in that way is a more beneficial culinary instruction. Instruction, exactly. From a culinary education perspective, I think, our online classes are more effective because you have to do everything start to finish by yourself in your home kitchen and you're live coached by your instructors. You do it. But obviously from like the relational cultural immersion perspective, I'm really looking forward to us being able to go back to in-person classes. There is still like from my experiences in the classes, I mean, of course, in-person is wonderful, but I think you still, we still have the sharing component, the yeah. asking questions and interactive. And the virtual dinner party at the end. And the virtual dinner party at the end. And we can share a space and everyone talks to each other, talks to each other about the culture and the food. And, and so League of Kitchens, in a way that learning online in other spaces, like on a YouTube video or, or something like that, it's offering so much in that way in this time of an interactive participatory experience totally. around food and cooking. Totally. And yes, you as you mentioned, you get the live coaching. Yeah. So yeah, and yeah, I mean, sure. that's literally like Mab saying, like, show me your beans. Right. <laughs> and the dough, too. Like, touch your dough. It's, right. Is it sticky? Is it elastic? Right, right, right. Yeah, so it's very interactive. And and I've been very happily surprised by ha- how actually connected the online classes feel, mm-hmm. particularly during this time of quarantine and, you know, particularly when we launched in the spring and people were really home, this, you know, that you were able to – break out of your apartment or home where, you know, you're either alone or with your immediate family and not seeing others and be with other new people and to even just have a new 
embodied, multi-sensory, visceral experience in your home because you're cooking and making something with your body and smelling something and eating, tasting something that you otherwise wouldn't be. Like I just, for myself, when I was taking our new online classes as part of the training, like I found that so satisfying and exciting, that kind of novelty and change and sense of learning and shared experience too, because it actually, I found it so kind of magical to be eating the same food at the same time with all these people all over the US. Mm -hmm. For real. And you're contributing to a space and learning something. It's totally surreal. I actually, I had a dream about it, that I was, I was walking on the street and watching a video of somebody making steak, of my friend making steak. And all of a sudden I was transported to her house and eating steak with her. And you know, it really is surreal. And I think that was my subconscious processing that I'm like, half in these women's kitchens right. and eating the food and it's like smell a vision you know right, totally like <laughs> it's it is really a surreal kind of yeah, thing it's, it's actually very powerful and cool like mm-hmm. I I was really surprised happily mm-hmm. surprised yeah yes good well Lisa that is a good note to end on <laughs> And it was really great to chat with you. I'm glad we got to share and hear your perspective on all of this. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Be sure to check out League of Kitchens on our website, leagueofkitchens.com, for upcoming public classes and private classes for birthday parties or team building programs. And you can follow League of Kitchens on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter at League of Kitchens. Thank you, Julia. This is so fun to have this chat. Yeah, fun for me too. All right. Bye, Lisa. Bye. Thanks for listening to A Taste of the Past at Heritage Radio Network, where you can find over 35 different podcasts on so many aspects of the world of food and drink. Heritage Radio is member-supported, relying on listeners like you to help us provide interesting quality content. Help support us by going to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart in the upper right corner. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.